first question is I would just love to hear your story. So um, anything you'd like to share in regards to, you know, growing your childhood, growing up, um, did you grow up in a Vedic society? What message did you do? messages did you receive as a female growing up um, in India and just anything you'd like to share? Yes, grew up in, in, a, in an orthodox family, very devout, uh, full of prayers, rituals, chants every day. And didn't think much of it because it was all from the standpoint of the child new clothes, good food, friends, you know, that's what every festival is all about. Until I think I had my first wake-up call when I was eight, and the family took the eight-year-old to see the Shankaracharya, one of them, anyway, from the Shringeri uh, establishment, from the Shringeri Pita. And it was not the reigning one now, but I think it was his predecessor who was still alive. And everybody was, you know, thronging to see him in line. And uh, it was explained to me that he's a very, very big holy saint. And he has the power to grant prayers and blessings. And it's a very special thing that we are going to go see him. So I was very excited. I said, oh, this is wonderful. And uh, then uh, what happened was that I saw the people ahead of me catch hold of his feet and put their head on his feet. And then I too did the same thing. And the whole thing, there was a huge outcry. And I was actually scared because I was startled. There was so much uh, reaction. And I was seven or eight years old. And I just, I said, what's, what's happening? And the, the, the parents were wishing that I was somebody else's child. And it was just such a, uh, what, what should I say, such a taboo. Like I had breached, later on I understood I had breached a taboo of women not touching him ever. And um, so that is, uh, and then I didn't know what this was all about. I said, he's a holy man and I wanted his blessings. You know, that's what I was trying. And everybody else in the line were looking at me like, now he has to go take a bath to wash you off, basically. And I, it made no sense to me at that time. But he was an enlightened person. And he just made the crowd chill out. And he said that, uh, you know, uh, she's just a child. She didn't do this on purpose. She's just a child let it go and he talked very sweetly to me and tried to um, remove the fear that was there in, in, in the heart and I think that that was my first uh, introduction to, uh, to my gender basically within the context of the religion. I mean otherwise I knew I was a girl and girls like this and boys like that. That was not an issue so much but then uh, so what does it mean to do gender within the context of the tradition was brought home with me and, I, and then I think I became a little more careful and a little more, uh, you know, like I would just stand back and observe. Whereas I think as a, a children's tendency is to just 
go forth and be spontaneous. Yeah, China. Yeah, so that is, I think uh, that is a, um, a useful memory to share in terms of your dissertation and everything. So I, yeah, yeah. So that's what I would like to share. Oh my gosh. No, that's, that's, thank you. So my follow-up question that I had placed um, is growing up in Hindu society, what would you say are the ways that Hinduism has empowered women and what ways have it, has it disempowered women? Is there anything you'd like to share in that? Regard? Yes, I think, you know, the Hindu tradition is a very uh, wonderful tradition to grow in as a woman. First of all, we have uh, goddess worship, very rare in the organized traditions. In, in, the, in the mainstream religions, God is always male, even though he's form, uh, even though it's formless, but it's a he, they are convinced. And uh, they will not entertain. <laughs> In the orthodoxy, <laughs> you know that that uh, uh, that it could be a she, and this is what happened. Yes. There was one uh, interfaith uh, uh, conference I went to with all the big wigs and this imam and somebody and some Russian Orthodox, uh, you know, their hats. You can tell from the size of their hats and the hair, you know, whatever things, uh, how important they are. And here I was with my teacher and we were sitting in a circle and then we had to come up with some resolutions to, to show for to the press and after the conference to release these resolutions. So one thing, you know, my teacher proposed is we can say that, I mean, it was very innocuous. We can say that some people uh, invoke God as he while uh, some others invoke God as she. That can be the first, uh, whatever. They had a conniption. And I've never seen so many people so bent out of shape all at once. And, <laughs> and they were all just very upset. And then so we, we could not even go there, even as a possibility, even to affirm what was already happening. And so, so this is a very big thing, that God looks like me. And that's wonderful. There is, a, there, there is a role model, there is affirmation, there is, there is a connection. And, uh, you know, so this is something which is, I think, the most empowering thing for uh, uh, the Hindu uh, woman growing up in the tradition. And so this is something which is, uh, uh, the other thing also is that, you know, there is a certain kind of a personal space that one can take. One can, what should I say, wrap oneself in the shawl of the tradition. And it becomes a boundary, mm. a healthy boundary. Mm. You stay over there. This is me time. Me time is goddess time. Me time is god time. It's 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 japa time. I'm I'm doing meditation. Don't don't mm. come anywhere near me. So and that has to be respected by all. And so there is space. And I mm. I have seen with all the elder uh, women in my family, grandmother, aunts, everybody. And we, if they are praying, nobody can come and ask anything. You know, at the peril of, mm -hmm. of getting uh, bad karma, you go, you go and disturb somebody in prayer. So that's something which is very, very nice. That's the second thing which is extremely empowering. 
And the third thing, which is very empowering, and this is from my own experience and those of others, is that there is a there is quite a bit of leeway for redefining one's, uh, you know, the redefining or in reinterpreting some of the ways in which things are done. So in the middle mm. of the ritual, you know, in the uh, suppose the suppose the ritual say, says wear wet clothes and do this then the woman can just say that's nonsense it's the middle of the winter and i don't want to you know feel uncomfortable i'm not going to do this and so there's always substitutes and so you can substitute this and you can you know like the woman may have some wet clothes and put it on the chair wrap the chair in it but she will sit on the floor in nice dry clothes and so that is you know some ways uh, in which there is a lot of freedom it is mm. also disempowering not because of the religion uh, per se i don't think but because of the ways in which uh, it has been interpreted through patriarchal through the patriarchal gaze so we have for example certain kind of layering of texts we have the primary texts called the upanishads and then in that is included the bhagavad gita because it just clones the upanishad in a very simple way and then we have other secondary texts and then we have also um, you know the first portion of the veda which is uh, which is again a primary text but that is not accessible to everybody so the secondary texts are what are called uh, uh, sutras and the sutras are aphorisms through which though the veda is interpreted and and there are some sutras like apastamba sutra gautama sutra etc etc and they were all written by men men with complexes mm -hmm. men with with issues men with uh, nothing better to do and and so they <laughs> they had, they made all these rooms because they were just thinking about uh, the, the main thing. I mean, I have studied these sutras. Uh, very interesting. I think you can, uh, Dharma Shastras, Dharma Shastra it's called. And so in the Dharma Shastras, uh, you know, they had one and only a singular focus. The focus was to keep the status quo, especially with regard to the division of labor and, uh, in the society. And they very quickly understood something that if women start to pray some of these, you know, uh, very holy and high-powered chants that are designed to give vairagya, dispassion, they may just go off to the Himalayas and become sannyasis. <laughs> and, so, and who will cook? Who will clean? Who will give birth? Who will take care? So this was, from their standpoint, a very, very practical uh, what should I say? A very, very practical thing uh, that 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 some curbs should be put, even though the Upanishad does not say women should not chant this. So three things happened because of the, these uh, stupid interpretations. So the first thing that happened was an entire Veda, and the Vedas are four in number, and the Sama Veda, an mm -hmm. entire Veda that was upkept by women. Women used to maintain it. Women used to chant it. Women used to sing it. That was wrested from the hands of women and given to men. And as though that was not enough, women will not chant the Vedas. It was like an edict. 
in all the sutras. And then women should not chant the Sri Rudram, a very holy um, a chant, which, uh, which makes you think about toxicity and toxic people in your life and dropping them, dysfunctional things and things mm -hmm. that do not serve you and dropping them and all these things and, mm -hmm. and which makes you very, very self-aware radiant and mm -hmm. resplendent in your own glory. Women should not chant mm -hmm. that. Women should not chant Gayatri Mantra, the first mantra that's given uh, to men and to, to boys and girls before it was given to boys and girls. And even the most uh, rigid interpreter Manu of the Manu Smriti fame, even he said mm -hmm. the girls are uh, entitled to, be, to wear the sacred thread and to chant the Gayatri. In fact, they should be given the Gayatri, but somehow wow. it was it was disregarded, and the Gayatri mm -hmm. would lead to a lot of other problems because the Gayatri means one is getting initiated in the study of the Veda, and so uh, what if you don't initiate women at all? So then you know you don't have to uh, you know you don't have to worry about them chanting the, chanting the Veda. Then the final thing the women could not chant was Om. Om again makes one really go deep within oneself. And we can't have women doing that. I mean, we, we need them to cook clean and take care of the household. Wow. That's so interesting, the background you share on that. Um, after reach, you know, it's it's not you know, none of, like, none of what you've said I have read anywhere, um, even though there is information out there that, you know, argues different positions on both sides, but that's so rich. It's fascinating. Um, all Guru's grace. That's all. Yes. 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 So what is, can you share with me a little bit about your journey coming into the study of the Vedas yourself and, of course, the study of Vedanta and... Yes. You know, it's like the... Uh, what's that? It's like a natural outcome of two things. One is just growing up in a family where one was surrounded by that. So there is a lot of cu natural curiosity. What is all this about? And the second thing, the reason that brought me to this uh, was as a professor, uh, uh, I was having so many students during the office hours. This was in a previous life before the ordination. And I mm. was having, you know, lines of students. And it was not really, you know, because of me or I was great or something like that. I just took it as uh, there is a lot of need. There is a lot of desperation. People really want to know how to lead their lives. And this is, and then in, mm -hmm. when they came to see me, it wasn't questions about assignments and what to write in this paper mm -hmm. or, you know, I need an extension on that. No, it was more like I'm breaking up with my partner of three years. How do I go? Mm -hmm. Why did this happen? How can I get, get, get go mm -hmm. forward in life? or I'm having issues with my primary, you know, the people, the uh, parents, and what to mm -hmm. do with that, 
or something like this. It was my friends or my, my life. It was all about relationships. And then what is the purpose of my life? And one man, young man came and said, please give me at least one reason why I should continue to live before you call the, mm. before you call the ambulance and all the uh, counselors and everything. And so then uh, yeah. one thing was very clear that here was, you know, I, I felt uh, helplessly inadequate to address the, these, these needs and these situations. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew some things and I was being older. I mean, they were all, what, 19, 20, and I was much older as their professor. And so I could offer something from mm-hmm. experience, but it felt very shallow. You know, especially mm-hmm. when people are asking me the meaning of life and what is the purpose of life. I said, I better find out before I share with them. Yeah. Before I share with yes. them. And so then that yeah. led me to meeting my teacher. And I met uh, one of his disciples first who had come uh, to, to give uh, a talk. And so um, I was... Uh, you know, I wanted to record her just like you are recording me now. And I wanted to hear what she had to say and everything like that. I was actually doing it for a um, uh, for a magazine that I was uh, that, that I was a, a collective. I was having a women healers collective. And so for this magazine, I wanted like a lead interview. And so I went to see her and a very interesting my friend was going to do the video and I was going to ask the questions so we both went to see her but then a very strange thing happened loaded up the car and uh, was uh, you know and then she forgot something or she needed to use the bathroom so we came back in and then when we it was all of two minutes and I picked up some you know uh, student papers thinking I will you know how how it is we always think we have more time and we'll do some papers somewhere and (laughs) that's a myth that's an illusion so that is like the academic maya it's academentia so (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) so then I, i i came in to get some student papers and she came in to use the bathroom we were gone literally for two minutes and then somebody broke into the car stole all the you know stole all the equipment and everything and so i found myself calling this lady who was a disciple of my teacher she's very famous actually she's an ayurvedic healer her name is maya tiwari fantastic person and has is very erudite and has written on uh, numerous things on ayurveda and um, like the intersection between Ayurveda reclaiming your power as women and Vedanta. She has really done a lot of cutting edge work. Oh, Maya Tiwari. Yes. Oh, yes. I actually did um, spend a week with her way back. Yes. Yes. I just didn't recognize the name at first. Yeah. Anyway, so I just, you know, said, uh, all right, you know, uh, I, this is, uh, this is something big is about to happen. I felt because this was like a this was like a big thing. No, this doesn't happen every day, and so I said everything yeah. has been taken away. The wallet is gone. So that's something about identity and everything. And so uh, uh, my friend, who was more 
practical of the two of us. So she called all the companies and everything. And she called Maya and said, you know, uh, this is what has happened. Because Maya said, I only have half an hour to, to meet with you. But she said, Maya yeah. said she'd had a dream and that something like this would happen. And she was guided to leave the whole morning open. So then, uh, then I went over there and then I started to ask, we, we went over there, I started to ask questions. And when, I, uh, when the topic came of the teacher, uh, I somehow stopped the line of inquiry and only wanted to ask about the teacher. And that was it. The very next day, I, I packed two suitcases and went to India and, and met the teacher. And that, that, wow. so that is, how, uh, that is how the journey started. Wow. That's such a, a amazing story yeah. just to have certain events occur that sort of made it very memorable and important, knowing like, oh, something big is about yes. to happen. Yes, because said. everything is being taken uh, away, so it must be something really big. Yeah, and so it's life as before. The whole identity it it it, it prophesied a shift in in uh, how one identifies with oneself. You know, with regards to the little pieces of plastic that come in the wallet, and this is who you are, and this is you know uh, all that. And so the wallet may not change, but cognitively everything has changed. Oh my goodness! And so what? Let me look what I have here. But so I'm just curious then once you met um, Pooja Swamiji yes. and you started studying with yeah. him, was there anything unique about the way he related to female students that kind of struck you as important? Or yes. I mean, he, he was just, uh, he was like a mother. I can't even say he was like a father. <laughs> he was both father and mother. Mm. And he was just like a mother. And he was he was soft, and I learned a lot from him about uh, uh, about relating to women and what are some of the pedagogical tools that he you know mm. he would uh, use. Like in one instance, uh, I you know I was very close to him because I traveled with him for seven years, uh, all mm. over the world in the length and breadth of India and all over the world. And uh, I spent a lot of time with him. I used to uh, uh, take dictation of the letters he wanted to write. I used to read to him every evening on when he walked on the treadmill. And so this was, uh, uh, so I had a lot of chances. He kind of really took me in under his wing. And it was, it was very, very clear that I was an apprentice. And I had to just watch. And even sometimes people came to have um, closed door talks. And as the door was about to close, he would, he would go like this, come in and take a seat. And I was privy to many things. And then on one occasion, mm -hmm. and this is nothing private, this happened in public. One occasion, one person derided somebody as one woman, derided somebody as a man and a woman, a couple, derided a student, um, a co-student of mine who for something, some omission or something she hadn't done and everything like that. And then uh, Pujya Swamiji, the guru, he just got very silent. He listened to the whole thing. And then he said, uh, women 
are sensitive about being blamed. He said, everybody is sensitive, but especially we have to be very sensitive about women being criticized and blamed. And you will have a lot more luck if you rephrase what you have to say constructively without targeting wow. and without knowing why she might have mm -hmm. done something. And then uh, I have also heard him say uh, that uh, this, that a woman has to go to her in-law's house in the patriarchal culture is, is a travesty because here is one woman who has to get adjusted to so many egos. And uh, mm -hmm. so she had a surname and now she has to drop that name and take on the husband's name in a traditional thing. And so this is something mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, you know, which is very difficult. And he would say women make a lot of sacrifices for society and the family. And then uh, mm -hmm. the final cherry on top came uh, when I asked him the question. I said, Swamiji, you have gone everywhere. You know so many jnanis, people of self-knowledge who are enlightened. Where are they? I said, where do they, where do you find them? Are they in the hills? Are they in the cities? Where are they? And then he thought about it. And then he said, they are in, I see the knowledge of the self more often than not shining in the elderly housewives. <laughs> and he said, I may not even have met them that much. And uh, I go to their house for, I have, I'm invited to lunch and the man of the house is sitting right next to me and eating his lunch also and keeping on talking. And he, he went like this, blabbing something or the other. And, and as the woman is serving me, I look into her eyes and she looks into mine. I know she knows, she knows, I know she knows. <laughs> wow. So there was something, some good karma that took me to such the, the, the feet of such an enlightened master, especially with regard to uh, gender issues. And he sent me to the most conservative conference to represent him. That was something, some other story. It was something else. Do you want me to go into that? Would that be useful or uh, should, should I not? Yes, I think that would be actually really, really nice. Yeah, to share that, that experience. Yeah, this was in 2007 or 8. It was the Hindu-Jewish dialogue and uh, uh, it was a high-level delegation. And I had been working in the background, you know, writing letters and inviting people and everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Swamiji got bronchitis and he was told not to travel, especially on the plane and everything. His lungs were very weak. And he said, you must go. And then, you know, I received a letter from the rabbinet uh, in Israel saying that women should not speak until they are spoken to and there are these are the protocols with the rabbis and this is if you are coming you 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 can come but this is what you 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 cannot talk you cannot do this and you have to walk behind them not in front of them etc and as though that was not enough then they i got a letter from the indian delegation 
one of the swamis who said he cannot look at women at all. His whole life is about avoiding women. So sad, no? And but that that is what it, his whole life is about uh, avoiding women. And she, she said, I cannot look at uh, women. Don't come. Don't have any women come in front of me. So then I called Purja Swamiji and poor thing was coughing so much. But still, you know, he found it amusing. And he said, all the more reason you should be there and you should go. So huh. I went and I gave them a wide berth. I just hung around in the back. And then because, you know, unless they turned, I did not eat with them, went, took my food and then went, uh, you know, and sat at some other table and ate there and everything and this is how it continued. And it was interesting. The head of the Indian delegation, who was not very uh, well versed in English, came and said, uh, you know, I want you to write me a talk in English so that I can give that talk. So I said, OK. And I said, what do you want to say? He says, oh, figure something out. You say it. I'm sure you do a great <laughs> And then so it was there were lots of interesting things happening. The final day, wow. it, you know, I think perhaps because there was this big delegation or something, it snowed in Jerusalem after 75 years when we were there. And then on that day, they were supposed to take yeah. us, uh, you know, to, to visit the old city and the markets and everything like that. And then, of course, I was in a different car. They went in a bus because, you know, I didn't want, I just gave them a lot of leeway. So I went in a little taxi, yeah. which dropped me off at a designated place. And then the taxi left. And then it was snow, snow everywhere. And here I am looking. I have no idea which little cul-de-sac they have all gone into. I have no idea. The bus has also returned. I could see the tire marks. And I just stood there. I said, you know, this is, uh, this is very, very interesting. And I, you know, I, I don't know what to do. And maybe I should just stand here. Guess who came for me, Catherine? Guess who came for me? The Swami that cannot look at women. He missed me. And he missed, and he came and he said, Mataji, mother, this way, follow me. He came to get me. And so when I tell, whenever I tell this story, I say sometimes your absence is more powerful than your presence. <laughs> yes. Wow. What a, wow. I love that. I love hearing that. It's just, it's so fascinating because uh, just the, um, so I went to Coimbatore for five mm. weeks on two occasions and I just always felt safe in Pooja Swamiji's yes. presence at, you know, I've met, you know, um, many gurus and teachers and things like that. And I, so I studied my past studying with Carol with Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, and so she's been my main teacher. So when I was studying with her, I was like, well, I'm not interested in meeting a man teacher. You know, I was like, I, I don't need to meet, you know, and then I was listening to her interview him and I heard his voice and I immediately knew that I wanted to meet him. And upon meeting him, I was just so taken by how safe I felt as a woman, you know, just my journey as a woman through life and how he had a, 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 a very unique presence and, and just regard for women in the way he, yes. um, and that was just so healing in itself because I think to really, you know, kind of take in the knowledge in a deeper way, you know, meeting and 
and Radha was there during that time. So it just deepened my um, study and experience and just to, so I've always just felt so much gratitude for the knowledge, but also for his his unique presence with Absolutely. women. I agree with you 100%. And also he transmitted uh, to, you know, he transmitted to all of us a very important uh, point is that any kind of slight and here in this in this trip there were many reasons or many ways in which i could have taken offense but that never happened mm -hmm. that never happened instead i found myself feeling very sorry for that swami like what a way to live life avoiding half the population of the world uh, but uh, so i was feeling more compassion than any kind of a slight or offense and that was because of the way he taught and his teachings mm. were just very simple. Nobody at any given time is out to get you. That was what he, he, yes. he really taught. He took away, the, the, this knowledge takes away subjectivity. Mm. Takes away the past hurts and the past, uh, uh, the effect of the past, whatever it is, whatever may have happened with the primary caregivers. Okay, and so, so whatever, way, whatever yeah. baggage one is carrying is all gone in the light of this knowledge because uh, uh, we start seeing the world as the guru sees the world. And that is the greatest blessing of all if it is an enlightened guru. Mm. Yes, I always remember um, one of the talks he was talking about forgiveness and not liking the word forgiveness and just about understanding the background. Mm -hmm. And that always stuck out as just being such an important part of kind of, you know, his teaching and what you're speaking to. And, and it's so healing because you kind of then relax like, oh, okay. <laughs> Understanding the background's easier than trying to force yeah, through. Yeah, or trying you to know. fix somebody because that cannot happen. Fix yeah. Yes, yeah, yes. Um, so then as, so on that journey, you became a teacher yourself and became, you know, a very eminent teacher. I know you've, you've traveled the world, you have, um, you know, so many students. So is there anything, is there a pivotal moment in, in, on that journey or anything significant you'd like to share as being a female teacher or, um, so the transition from student to teacher or just as a teacher in a female body? that you would like to share? I don't think of myself as, as in the female body most of the time. I mean, you know, right now I'm thinking of it because that is the topic of this interview. Yeah, but yeah. I don't yes. really think of myself as a in a female body because the knowledge is transcends gender completely. And so I mm -hmm. really don't uh, dwell on, on, on how I must be appearing to people or what I should do to present myself a certain way in order to be more effective or efficacious. Uh, I don't find myself mm -hmm. going there at all. I never did. Never did. Mm. If anything, it was just uh, the transition is always because, you know, of two things. One is all transitions are difficult and scary so it's kind of very nice it's the same thing like you go from graduates to school 
I mean, it's one thing to be a TA, but then you just become a professor and that's like, okay, you know, this is uh, the graduate school days is like, a, you know, it's, it's like a safety, you know, like a little cloak of safety mm -hmm. and you feel it's it's you feel complacent and and we, you know there is a certain world and you know how to negotiate that as a student but then mm -hmm. as a teacher the parameters shift and so the, the so every transition you know brings up uh, under confidence and other issues generally speaking and so uh, that is there and then uh, i think that uh, that you know that was very easily uh, easily remedied um, that the teacher Pooja Swamiji had a way with words and had a way with talking to me that really spoke to me and then when he said like a one sentence or two sentences it was gone and so once I asked him all these people who come to the classes are much older than I am and in the in the Hindu tradition everyone thinks of themselves as the Pope you know and because we don't have a pontiff everybody pontificates everybody says something and so i said you know i i just don't know what to do i mean how do i hold my own and he said two mm -hmm. things one is vedanta holds itself you don't have to hold it it'll hold you it'll hold everybody and then the second thing mm -hmm. he said i'll never forget is that you have to be big like me he said think big be big and it was more i think uh, like a blessing it was not be big as in uh, you know throw your weight around or uh, have a large following that was not what he was ta talking about he was like mm -hmm. outgrow these things and be big be expanded be you know make your heart uh, big enough to accommodate a few galaxies that is what he was talking about and it made a profound impact on me and I, I just was you know I kind of went into a little bit of a trance for a few days I was transfixed with keeping on dwelling on these words be big like me be you know be bigger than the problems be bigger than uh, whatever is uh, ailing you and uh, that really really helped that's powerful Wow. Yes. Just taking all of this in, I appreciate this so much. Um, just not only for my dissertation, but just on a personal level. Yes, muscle. absolutely. You can't, you can't distinguish it. And that's why I'm so happy with your dissertation. Yes, thank you. It's 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 been a long journey, but it feels more timely now. I feel like there's more ways to you know, have dialogue with different platforms and um, there's more, you know, lectures available, say, for different teachers on YouTube. So it, that's made it um, timely. Yeah. Um, so what do you think has led to the growing number of female teachers in Vedanta? And I'm just curious as far as like what you think the biggest catalyst for this is? And maybe how did Pooja Swamiji, modernity, um, and perhaps a growing number of eager female students influence this yes, shift? Yes, you have already answered the question. And all of you. He was, uh, Swamiji was the one of the people who ordained women. He, many people did not uh, ordain women, and they still do not. 
there is some kind of a half ordination and all this, but in uh, in our tradition, in our Shavidya, we don't have that. We have a full ordination. And it is, yes. Oh, okay. And it is, it is just so wonderful. And so it is, uh, that really started it because, and it is a teaching tradition. So it's not that the women are making tea and the men are teaching. The women are also teaching. Mm -hmm. And so I think, and also I think the time is right. And uh, there is, you know, when the need arises, it is fulfilled. It is the way, it is the law of the universe. It is the law of Ishvara. And so I think that the, the prayers of numerous women uh, students perhaps has brought this uh, change and it is to be celebrated and the time is right and everything is, you know, happening. Yes, yes. It does seem like there's a very, uh, a building of uh, feminine energy and I think that's one thing that I've also in in having interviews with different female teachers is I'm wondering if you've noticed both of your own teaching and the teaching of other female teachers, if there's any notable sort of feminine pedagogy, like way of teaching and in one of my, um, in one of the texts I was studying that was looking back into the Vedas and some of the first female Rishikas, it had this idea of females teaching with love and friendliness. And that really struck me because I've witnessed that. And there is an element of relating to people in a very sort of um, loving, friendly way that seems to be pretty um, it, universal, at least in the in what I've witnessed with female teachers. So is there anything you could speak to on that? No, I, because I find that a num numerous male teachers are also very loving and friendly, you know? So yes. because I think it is, it is not so much about one's gender per se, uh, because I think it is about Vedanta in general. So if you are a carrier of this knowledge of oneself as whole, free and joyous how can you not be how can you be anything but loving and friendly that's what i think yeah. you know and uh, <laughs> uh, but pedagogically what uh, uh, if there is if there is a female parampara or some kind of a practices or something like that uh, that would i think have to do with um, with again uh, in the the interpretation of the texts and the texts we have a very rich history of hermeneutics pun intended and so and yeah. so <laughs> and so there you know you, you there is a lot of leeway there is a lot of leeway and you can mm -hmm. you can look at uh, a story in the upanishad you know and mm -hmm. you can look at men getting themselves into tied up in knots about something in a particular narrative. I'm not recalling it immediately, but you know, maybe some mm -hmm. example may come later. And then you can say that, oh, poor things, look at them, you know, and they're having a very hard time. And that itself becomes a very, uh, you know, interesting kind of a uh, interjection. And then when studying 
and when uh, teaching the Keno Upanishad. There we have the first female guru of this Vidya. Mm. We have the, and we have the avatara of Haimavati Uma, the goddess who comes as a teacher. This is overlooked. Even Adi Shankara in the commentary doesn't talk about it. He talks about her as a goddess. Mm. But then we know in the culture and in the, in, in, in the tradition, there is a big divide between worshipping the goddess and then looking at you know, the condition of women. There is a big discrepancy. Uh, in, in, in most cultures which have goddess worship, the same thing is there. So now we have the um, we have that uh, very important uh, thing to see uh, it for what it is. Here in the story, Indra, uh, you know, there is one kind of a mysterious being that comes into the room when Indra and uh, the god fire, Agni and Vayu, um, wind, they are all partying while forgetting that uh, they are partying because they have uh, they are celebrating a victory and in a war uh, while forgetting that the victory was because of the grace of God. They forgot that. And so God decided to come in a form, form of a yaksha and to just mess with them and to remind them that all their powers they take for granted, like the, the, the power of the fire to burn and the power of the wind to blow, is, is, doesn't belong to them, but belongs to Ishvara. And so then, you know, that, that, uh, our, that, that's the first instance of an avatara, and that avatara goes away when Indra goes to talk to, to, to this uh, uh, yaksha, this celestial being. And then he, the celestial being disappears, and Indra sits and meditates, cleanses his heart, and in the same place where the celestial being disappeared, a wonderful golden-hued woman, goddess figurine, figure is standing there, mm. alive, and she teaches him the Upanishad. How mm. can we miss this? You know, we can't miss this. This is, this is what I would call a, 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 a women-centered pedagogy. When we look at this, I mean, if it, if supposing, let's say that uh, that avatara, the second one that came, was in a male body, we would have said, oh yes, yes, it's the teacher, you know, Lord Narayana has come as the teacher, Lord Shiva has come as a teacher, and we do have that Dakshinamura. But here there is Haimavati Uma, you know, and uh, this, this is Ma means knowledge. That's what it is. She who is the embodiment of resplendent self knowledge as resplendent and self-evident as the self. And here she came to reveal the self in the form of the teacher. And the, the being that disappeared had to disappear because it was really oneself and it, it could not be objectified. And when Indra went and tried to relate to Ishvara as an object, it disappeared. And she tells him all this. And it is just beautiful. And so this is how we have to uh, understand this and uh, we have to we have to teach it in new ways we have to write about it in new ways and then that is that is when uh, you know we have a new uh, it's not really new but i think we have a uh, we have a women centered parampara and pujya swami ji has done so much for this because he would say well you know people will get offended studying the gita because it is only addressed to men and let me be the first person to tell you that it is addressed to men. <laughs> because it's all in the masculine. Yeah, mm. so he would, he did a lot to carve out a, 
uh, female-centered, women-centered pedagogy of teaching Vedanta. I mean, I have learned so much from him. I'm, I am so grateful. And his mind was like, you know, like the whole cosmos, everything he could hold in it mm -hmm. and everything he could mm -hmm. make okay. And even the most disgruntled person, wow, you know, would want to go see him. And yeah. even the most hurt person, <laughs> even the most angry person, he he had yeah. that that uh, the force of the knowledge uh, was such that he could disarm everybody, and that is something mm. you know that more than trying to be a woman teacher, that is what is to follow. You know, you just accidentally mm -hmm. happen to fall in the in the woman's body. That's what it is. Yeah, mm. that is not the main thing. <laughs> It is, yeah, right. Um, it's interesting though. I've never heard that about the Kano. It was the Ken, Kano Upanishad. Ken, yeah. I, with the research I've done, like I haven't heard that. I haven't studied that particular Upanishad. So I'm excited to go go look at that. <laughs> um, I just want to see if there. Okay, so one final question that I have, is there anything unique about the way Advaita Vedanta empowers women? So is there any anything about the teaching that uniquely empowers women, say, as compared to other traditions or other teachings? Absolutely. It empowers all humanity. And how can it not empower women? And here one was thinking that one is a victim of circumstances. One is a one is in the hands of karma. And one has all these responsibilities and all these things. And one is a doer. And one is done in. When one is not a doer, one is done in by other people's doings. And here, this person, you know, whether man or woman, is told, you are free. And 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 mm -hmm. and you are whole. You are limitless. In fact, you are not the. Be, you are not existing because of all these circumstances. You are indeed one with the cause. And if 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 anybody is told that, that is just so transformative, completely transformative. And then within the the the, the current context of uh, you know gender dynamics disc discrepancy oppression internalized oppression. If a person is, is shown this, imagine, you know, imagine, I mean, it is unimaginable, unimaginable. Like one is, it is, it is, uh, it becomes a kind of a, you know, to use a cliched term, a kind of a liberation theology, you know, uh, uh, mm -hmm. in the sense of uh, uh, not just liberation, uh, moksha as liberation, but also liberation from everything else that is staring at one in the face uh, on an empirical realm. And there is a beautiful saint uh, uh, I wish to introduce you to. Her name is Bahinabai in the 17th century, a bhakti movement saint. And she was a poet. Mm -hmm. And she was married to an extremely control freak kind of a narcissist husband. And here she was, you know, all the time attending to him. And on top of that, he was sickly and angry and highly suspicious. Even if she went to pray, he was like, who are you with? This kind of a fellow. And um, a total control freak. And then, you know, she she used to give vent to her feelings in poetry. And what beautiful poetry. 
and some of them have been translated. And one of them I quote, the Vedas cry out, the Puranas shout, no good may come to a woman. Oh Lord, what am I to do having been born in this woman's body, says Bahina. You know, so uh, she refers to herself in the third person as uh, that, that, was a, that was the way she, that they would uh, delegate authorship in their poetry, says Bahina. Uh, you know, what is this? Uh, how, how am I to know the truth? If the, Veda, no, if the Vedas are looking upon me like this, how am I to know the truth? But know the truth she mm. did. And not only that, I mean, when she knew the truth and when she was free, she studied with the Guru secretly. And, um, and when, she, when she was free, uh, the husband came around. That is the power of Vedanta. Yeah, mm. and Pooja Swamiji used to talk about this freedom in relationship, free not freedom from relationship. Right. Um, <clears throat> Swamini, can you text the name yes, of, of will, the poet? I will, I will uh, send okay. it by email. Okay. Yes, I would love that. I would love that. So then one just short follow-up question, and then I want to honor your time. Um, would you say then, there's so much out there in popular culture. I see a lot of um, teachers and coaches really trying to help people move through their trauma and their, um, what we'd call maybe attachment patterns um, in forming more healthy relationships. And would you say that Vedanta is nicely supplemented by those teachings? Or would you say Vedanta has enough in itself when properly taught and understood to, to really heal, um, I would, you know, those wounds, say inner child wounds, yes, so yes. to speak. Uh, yes, I think Vedanta has it. it. If it is properly assimilated and properly understood, properly taught, it has everything because it has, it has the, the preparation and the preparation includes is not averse to therapy <laughs> and uh, because that's what is talked about you know you share it out you talk it out it's not averse to therapy it's not averse to uh, any other creative form of dealing with trauma it's not averse to any other thing yoga any other ways of uh, expressing self-love etc etc in fact that is what it teaches vedanta is just the what's the word for it it, it opens the heart uh, to first it opens the heart to show you the wounds that need to be addressed and that is a freak out moment for a lot of people they are like oh i don't know if i want to look in here but then you look in there with the help of the guru with the help of all the people with whom you are studying and then you uh, and then the clearing of that happens and then for that shraddha um, you know devotion respect is needed respect and trust for the knowledge. Vedanta is mm -hmm. all about uh, uh, taking that inner child that stopped trusting and then taking it to finally to trust itself and to trust the whole universe, which is revealed as an extension of itself. Mm -hmm. So in the interim, it's made to bow down at the altar the, the, the trust that was lost in the primary caregivers is regained in, the, in uh, discovering the mother and the father of the universe. And then the next stage in Vedanta is to embrace that mother and father of the universe as the truth of oneself, as Ishwara. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Not so at all. Yes. So, so whenever you address a female monastic, I would like you to add G at the end. Because for the men, we do that automatically. So if, if we are interviewing, oh, yeah, we always say G for all the swamis. Many. And so we should do the same for female monastics. And this is just a, because you are studying this, I'm telling this. Okay. Yeah. So that will be good. Thank you. So, yeah. Uh, can I get this uh, a, a copy of this interview? Yes. That would yes. be wonderful. I, definitely. Yes. And um, yes. Yeah, so I'll be I'll be in touch, and I can send you a copy, and I'll kind of I'll keep you posted yes, yes. on. Yes. If you can send me the copy, that will be great, because I can share okay. it with some students or whoever might be interested in that. Yes, 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 yeah, definitely. Okay, well, thank you so much, Swamini. Yeah, have a blessed day. And I know you are a wonderful uh, student and you will uh, you will come out with a uh, breathtaking path-breaking dissertation. And I wish you good luck with that. And I know you are a wonderful mother. And uh, so good luck with that as well. Oh, thank you for the blessings. Take care. All the best. Okay. Oh, oh. You too. Oh.